0: Can you hear me now? Oh, great. Wonderful. We are in a sermon series called Jesus Revealed. And we are looking at who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you've got your Bibles, turn there. Normally, I'd say if you've got your devices, go there. Today's not a great day for devices. A lot of score checking going on, so... By all means, use your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark 2, 1 through 12. Four and a half years ago, uh, my family of four was headed to a family reunion in the mountains of Montana. And about 120 miles this side of Billings, as we're barreling along the freeway, all of a sudden, five deer run out right in front of our SUV. Now, the speed limit right there is 80 miles per hour. And my son is driving, so we might have added an extra couple of miles per hour to that 80 miles per hour as we're going along. And the way that the deer spread themselves out across the freeway as they were running across, there is no way that we are going to avoid hitting the deer. And so my son just keeps going straight, and he hits the one dead in the middle. And it goes flying it sounded like a bomb went off inside the car when we hit that deer. All of a sudden, all the lights are on all over the dash, and my son muscles the car over to the side of the road, which was no small feat, given that when we got out to look at the damage, the front end was caved in all the way to the wheel well on the driver's side. So the car won't run. The car won't start. And it wouldn't matter even if it did, because the front and the side are so caved in, it shouldn't be driven anywhere at that point. My daughter, who was a freshman in college, got out of the back seat. She was the last person to get out, and she came around to look at the damage, and she said to me, Dad, it's broken. Right? That's why we sent them to college, so that they'll have that kind of deep insight about these situations. She was absolutely correct. It was broken. Before the deer, that SUV worked the way it was supposed to. It was working great, but then once we hit the deer, nothing was working the way it was meant to. And the Bible says, that's us. That we as a people are broken. We don't work the way that God originally intended for us to work. And we can see that brokenness on the outside in our bodies in the susceptibility we have, from the point of conception to things like illness, disease, and disability. We see that brokenness in our bodies with each passing year. Amen? Right? We, we see that brokenness as we battle pot bellies, and we begin to lose the hair off the top of our head, and we grow hair in places where it doesn't belong. We battle that in the loss of memory. Our eyesight isn't what it's supposed to be anymore. And on and on. We get wrinkles and on and on it goes. Last year, my son and I, last summer, my son and I, we went on a hike together. And it was a significant hike and I was recovering for the next two days from that hike. That evening, my son went and played basketball. Right. That's the difference. Over the course of time, we recognize the breakdown that takes place, and we see it in our outward selves. But the Bible says, as challenging as the outward breakdown is, the brokenness on the inside is far greater. That Adam and Eve, they were going along, everything was working well, and then they had a collision with sin. And after that collision with sin, things didn't work the way they were supposed to. We as a people have been Rebellious against God. We've been selfish in relationships with others. Our hearts have been filled with discouragement, fear, anxiety. Not the way it was intended. We're broken. We don't work the way that God wanted us to work, that he made us to work. And in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus interact with a man who is broken on the outside. Everybody in the community knew him as the guy who was broken on the outside. And Jesus is going to fix the man on the inside before he fixes him on the outside. Look at Mark chapter 2 with me, beginning in verses 1 and 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. After weeks of preaching in other towns, Jesus returns to his home base of Capernaum. And there we're told that he's at home. Now that might just mean that he's in a home, but more likely it means that he has returned to his home base, which is the house of Peter. And as he goes to his home base, where he stays when he's in Capernaum, at Peter and Andrew's house, he is experiencing a flood of people once again. You remember in chapter 1? we're told the whole town came to Peter's house in order to see Jesus. Once again, so many people have come to see Jesus that you can't even get in and out of Peter's house. The whole town has come, but it's not just the townspeople who've come. A little later on in this passage, we're going to find out that the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees have come in order to hear Jesus. Luke's gospel tells us that the Pharisees and scribes came all the way from Jerusalem up to Capernaum in order to hear Jesus. Now think for a moment about the kind of report they must have gotten about Jesus in order to make that trip. The Pharisees and the scribes, who uh, they they thought of Jerusalem as the holy place and Galilee as a place for the unclean and the uncouth. And yet, they make a 90-mile journey up to the Sea of Galilee because of the reports that they have heard about Jesus. And they're there in the crowd listening to Jesus as he is teaching the Word of God to people. Now, as he is teaching, there are a group of guys who bring someone who is paralyzed. And they can't get into the home to see Jesus. And so they have to get creative, verses 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Don't gloss over the term paralytic just because this story may be familiar to you. Think for a minute about the kind of life that this guy led. In Greek and Roman society, toddlers were often discarded. Often their lives were ended because they had disabilities and they didn't believe they should be raised. The Greek philosopher Aristotle said, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be raised. Can you imagine that? In Jewish circles... It was understood among the Jewish teachers that if a person had a deformity like this, it was a direct result of their personal sin. I'm not talking about a result of the damage of creation that took place because of sin. I'm talking about a direct result of their personal sin. So that in John chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples meet a man who was born blind, the disciples' question to Jesus is, Who sinned? This man or his parents? There's no third option in their mind. This man has a disability, therefore they assume either this man is a terrible sinner or his parents are terrible sinners. It's one or the other. Now think about what it was like to grow up within that setting as a man who is paralyzed. To grow up in a setting in the Greco-Roman world where people said, you shouldn't have even have been allowed to live. To grow up in a setting within the Jewish world that says, Your particular sin is worse than others, and that's why you're like this. On top of that, there's just the physical realities of laying on that mat, begging for food day in and day out. Unable to get yourself to the bathroom. Unable to get yourself to be cleaned up. As we can see in this passage, dependent upon others to go anywhere. That's this man's life. And four men carry this paralyzed man to Jesus. And when they get to the home, they can't get in. The house is too crowded. And so they have to get creative. Can you imagine how the other guys looked at the guy who first suggested, let's cut a hole in the roof? Like what? Cut a hole in the roof? That's crazy. But for guys, this involves a couple of things that most of us enjoy, right? Problem solving and demolition. And so they make their way up that exterior stairway that Holmes had, up onto the roof, which was used as an extra living space in this nicer climate. And they began to dig a hole in the roof. Imagine the scene from the inside. Jesus is teaching, and the room is already electric. It's already filled with tension because you've got Pharisees and scribes there seeking to get him. And in the midst of this teaching, all of a sudden... There's some scratching and clawing going on over Jesus' head. And everyone says, what is that? And then debris starts to fall on Jesus and those gathered around. i got to believe Jesus probably stopped teaching at this point. As debris is falling on them, they're trying to back up in that crowded, in that crowded room. And then light pierces through the roof. Now, if this is Peter's home, i got to imagine he's super calm about all this, right? Because that's really what we get from Peter in the Gospels. Super level-headed, super calm about these things. Go ahead, put an open-air skylight in my house. I I was looking for that. No, probably not. Probably not calm about this at all. And then... As they look up into the blinding light that is coming down through that hole that has been cut in the roof, there is a rectangle that gets lowered down to the floor in front of Jesus. How will Jesus react in this situation? I can tell you from personal experience, speakers and teachers, they're not excited about being interrupted. You'll notice Jesus came before the era of the cell phone. And so what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to be angry because they have interrupted his teaching? Is he going to be angry because someone has destroyed the house that he stays in? Or is he going to show them splagnidzomai, compassion? Verse 5 answers that question as we see the compassion of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith and he declared, What? Your sins are forgiven. That has to be some sort of mistake, right? Why was this man there? He was there to be healed. Jesus doesn't say to him, You're healed. He doesn't take him by the hand and raise him up. Instead, he proclaims over the man, Your sins are forgiven. The man was there to be healed, but Jesus was there for a different purpose. He wants everyone to understand that he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And so he declares to this man, your sins are forgiven. Now the Pharisees and the scribes who are there, when they hear this, they're so excited. They've got him. They were there in order to catch him saying something. And now they've caught him saying something. He is claiming to be the one who can forgive sins. And so in verses 6 and 7 we read, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes and the Pharisees are 100% right. No one can forgive sins except God alone. It is God alone who is properly offended by sin. It is God alone whose laws are broken when sin takes place. It is God alone whose name is damaged when people sin and disobey him. Only God can forgive sins. Now, if you commit a particular act against me, And I say, I forgive you when it comes to that act. That's appropriate, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is declaring all of this man's sins from his life to be forgiven. If this kind of claim to forgive all of a person's sins came out of someone who was broken like we are, it would be ridiculous. It would be blasphemy. But Jesus isn't one of us the broken. Instead, he's God in the flesh. And that's precisely what he is claiming here. I am the God who is properly offended by sin. I am the God who made the laws that you are breaking. I am the God who created the world that is damaged by your sin and selfishness. Don't, Don't get it wrong. That is all that Mark is claiming about Jesus over and over and over again, that he is God in the flesh. From the very beginning, when the great prophet John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. To the next scene, where God the Father declares, this is my son with whom I am well and perfectly pleased. To the next scene, where Satan tries to undo salvation for humanity by tempting the Son of God. To every demon that declares him to be the Holy One of God. To Jesus' constant mastery over the physical creation as he heals illnesses, to Jesus' constant mastery over the spiritual creation, as he casts out demons, he is Lord of what is seen and what is unseen. And Mark is making that so very clear here. What he wants us to understand is this is God in the flesh who can properly forgive sins. The Pharisees understand what he's claiming here, and they say this is blasphemy. And what is the proper punishment for blasphemy? It's a capital crime. Is that what's going to happen here? No, because of what happens next. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them. Now, pause there for a second. They are questioning who Jesus is. And here, Jesus is going to respond to thoughts that they have had and concerns within their heart. None of these have been verbalized. And yet Jesus is going to answer them. This should have been a clue to them. Wait, this guy's responding to my inner thoughts? Wait, what's going on here? What do you question? Well, I'm sorry. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus isn't saying that it's easier to forgive the man than it is to heal him. Jesus is saying that it's easier to say the man is forgiven than to say, get up and take your bed and walk. He's not suggesting forgiveness of sins is easier than healing. What he is saying is forgiveness of sins, that's not provable. So it's easy to say, but telling this man to get up, that is provable. I I could say today... In high school, I had a 40-inch vertical jump. It's a pretty easy statement to make. None of you know. But if I say, right now I have a 40-inch vertical jump, you're going to say, jump. Like, we don't buy that. It's far easier for me to make a statement that isn't provable than one that is. And Jesus is saying, okay, I get it. You're doubting whether or not I have the ability to forgive sins because that is internal, because that isn't provable. But so that you'll understand I have full authority to forgive sins, here comes something that you can measure. Here comes something you can see. Here comes something that's absolutely provable. Verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The man who had spent his life laying there on the broken mat suddenly gets up and begins to walk around the room, maybe to do a little bit of jumping. Oh, wow, look at this. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at what I can do now. Because of the healing that he has provided. His body has been miraculously fixed. And everyone around is amazed. Jesus has healed or fixed the man's inside. Your sins are forgiven. And just so that everyone would understand, he's the one with the authority to fix our insides. He says, I'm going to fix this guy's outsides as well. And he is healed on the inside and on the outside. God's healing happens in our life, the same way that it happens in this passage. Let me just give you a, a couple of keys here. First, we must admit we are broken. There, there's no healing or fixing that comes to our life if we're unwilling to admit that we are broken. One of the greatest challenges about human brokenness is that how hard it is for us to see our own brokenness. We have a tendency to compare ourselves with others. We get focused on the brokenness of others and we go, eh, I'm not really that bad by comparison. There is no healing. Jesus can't fix us unless we are ready to admit that we are broken. But it's not enough to admit that we're broken. In faith, we must seek Jesus for healing. There are all kinds of people who will admit they're broken and then wallow in their brokenness. Admit their brokenness and even wear their brokenness as a badge of honor. It is their identity now. But in order to experience the healing of Jesus, we have to not only admit we're broken, but want to be healed and come to him for healing in our life. That's what this man does. He and his friends come to Jesus say, there's something broken here. Will you bring healing? I want to give us a chance to seek Jesus' healing in three areas this morning. Seek Jesus' healing in three areas this morning. The first is the brokenness of our soul. I want us to seek spiritual healing if this is appropriate this morning. The Bible says that all of us, because of sin, are spiritually broken. We're dead in our sins. But Jesus came so that our souls may be restored and we might have spiritual life, that we might be spiritually healed. Now, this spiritual healing, that's the focus of Jesus in this passage. The man's physically healed. His body is physically healed. What happened to his body then? He lived a few more years, and then he died. Any physical healing that goes on is very temporary in light of eternity. And so Jesus' primary focus is that we would be forever healed with him in heaven. That only takes place if we are spiritually healed. How can we be spiritually healed? You remember last chapter, Jesus said, in order for us to experience forgiveness of sins, we must repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from a life of sin and self and turn to Jesus in faith as our Savior and our Lord. That is how a person experiences that salvation, that spiritual healing. In in just a minute, I want to give you an opportunity, if God's Spirit is working in your life, to come and, and pray about spiritual healing. If God's at work in your life and you're saying, yeah, I don't, I don't want to live like this anymore. I, I don't want to live for me in the things that I do. I don't want to live with this sin in my life anymore. I need the forgiveness of Jesus in my life. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to come and place your faith in him and repent of your sins. In, in just a minute, we're going to sing four straight songs of praise to God. And as we're doing that and as people are mulling around taking the Lord's Supper and putting their cards and offering in the red buckets, I'm going to be right down here with my wife over on this side of the stage. And if you want to pray for spiritual healing today, I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn to Jesus. I need his salvation in my life. We'll be over here and we want to pray with you about that. We want to talk to you about that spiritual healing. But just because spiritual healing is the primary focus, that doesn't mean that God is uninterested in physical healing. And so we want to give you an opportunity to be prayed for today for physical healing. Jesus heals this man of his physical ailments. And within the New Testament epistles, we are given a specific pathway that we're to walk down if we want physical healing in our lives from the sickness and disease that we wrestle with, the physical sickness and disease that we wrestle with. We see that pattern that we're supposed to follow in James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let the sick do what? Call on the elders of the church. In faith, go to the elders of the church and pray with them for healing in this situation. Not only are there to be prayers of faith that are offered up here, but we're told that they are to anoint the sick with oil. Why? What is the anointing of oil about? Throughout the Bible, a person is set apart through the anointing of oil. And so in this situation, a person is being set apart for healing through that anointing with oil. It's possible that that person is being set apart for further service to God by that anointing with oil. Why is it that God's going to heal them and raise them up? Because God has a specific purpose for their life. And he is going to heal them so that they will serve him fully and completely with the rest of what God gives them on this earth. And so they're being anointed for those purposes. I want you to see that not only is there to be prayers of faith and anointing with oil, but this is completely connected with the confession of sin in James 5. The very next verse says, "...therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God doesn't provide healing for those that are hiding. God doesn't provide healing for those that are hiding. If there is any sense in which we are hiding sin within our life, God does not provide healing in that person's life. And so he connects these prayers of faith from the elders, the anointing and setting aside for healing and the confession of sin because we have to be open about our brokenness, open about our mess if God is going to bring healing into our life. That's true of every kind of healing. We have to be open if we're going to experience the healing of God. And so Over the course of the next uh, four songs that we're going to sing, we are going to have our elders uh, ready to pray for you if you want prayer for physical healing in your life. Uh, Pastor Art and his wife, Barb, are going to be right up here. Uh, Tim and Melissa Whitmore will be over here against... I'm sorry, that is really wrong. Kyle and Melissa Whitmore will be over here, up against that wall... Tim and Sharon Whitmore will be back there against that back wall back there. And if there is healing that you want today, we want to invite you to go and spend time in faith with the elders being prayed over. They will anoint you with oil and they will ask you for confession of sin because there is no healing while we are hiding. All right, so be prepared to be open, to confess, to have them pray over you, to anoint you with oil. And you can uh, go to Art and Barb up here, Kyle and Melissa over here, and Tim and Sharon uh, back there. The final kind of healing that I would love for us to pursue today is relational healing. (laughs) Sin does damage to our relationships. And I want us to examine our hearts, our minds, and our relationships and realize... God wants his people to be a united people. He wants us to be one. He wants us to have healthy relationships with each other. And if there's any sense in which sin and selfishness has broken down relationships in your life, Matthew 5 says, go to that person. Don't even finish worshiping. Go to that person and take care of it. Between Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, we're told, if you've offended somebody else, go to them. If someone else has offended you, go to them. doesn't matter if you're the one who's done the offending or if they're the one who's done the offending, go to them. Be the one who is responsible. Seek forgiveness for anything you need forgiveness for and seek reconciliation with that person. Forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. Be one and united in Christ. If you're here today and there's a fracture with someone who's in the room, before we go to the Lord's table, grab that person go and spend some time praying with them, seeking their forgiveness and oneness with them. If you have a fracture with someone who's not in the room, which may be more likely, spend time praying about it. Write down when you're going to connect with them. Maybe you make a note in your phone, an appointment, a to-do. I'm going to connect with them. We're going to seek rightness in this relationship. But let's seek those right relationships. As I said in just a moment, we're going to begin to sing praises to God and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder to us of why we can have healing of any kind in our lives. It's because of what Jesus has done in order to provide forgiveness for our sins. And so as we take those elements the bread that represents Jesus' body, the cup that represents his shed blood, we do so praising him for what he's done in order to bring healing into our lives as his followers. Uh, I want to ask all of you to stand with me if you would. We're going to sing four songs praising God during that time. When your heart is ready, you can go and participate in the Lord's Supper. And you can take those elements yourself. Often we return and I lead us in the taking of those elements. Today we want you to take them whenever you're ready. Go ahead and take those elements. You you can put offering or cards into those red baskets that are on the table, red buckets that are on the table as well. And let's focus in on what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Don't ignore any promptings that the Holy Spirit is giving you today, whether it is for the spiritual healing of your soul, the physical healing of your body or the relational healing of relationships. Don't don't ignore any prompts that he's giving you. Let's be active and attuned and obedient to anything that he is calling us to. Father, we're so thankful for this time. And as we mull around and continue to worship you, we ask that your spirit would be moving and working within us, bringing us to a place where we seek healing in all the ways that you want us to. We're thankful for all you've done in order to uh, give that healing to us, to provide that healing for us in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.